This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Turner classic movies, right? Getting to see it. You know, I had never noticed when they first enter, one has the sunglasses on and the other takes it off. So, you know, you look at it a second time, you see things you missed the first time. That was pretty, pretty good. Well, as Pastor Tyler said, you know, as we've talked about uh, our mission as a church to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world, we now want to talk about our values. And really, when you talk about values, you're talking about the things that anchor you. Uh, we want to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and our world. That's our mission. But our values inform how we're going to go about doing that. And so this morning, we want to talk with you a little bit about the centrality of the Word of God. That God's Word is central. It's the foundation of all that we do. And so I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles or Turn on your electronic device, as is the case with Maddie, and let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Actually, 16 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. May God add blessing to the reading of His Word. Amen. I want to start with a story. It begins on the morning of September 13th, 1862. The 27th Indiana rested in a meadow outside of Frederick, Maryland, which had served as a site of a Confederate camp a few days before. Now, Sergeant John Bloss and Corporal Barton W. Mitchell found a piece of paper wrapped around three cigars. And as the story goes, as they began to pay attention first to the cigars, they noticed that there was something very important written on the paper wrapped around the cigars. The paper was addressed to Confederate General D.H. Hill. Its title read, Special Order Number 191, Headquarters, Army of Northern Virginia. Now, realizing that they had just discovered a copy of the Confederate battle plan, Bloss and Mitchell quickly passed it up the chain of command. Now, by chance, there was a division adjutant general named Samuel Pittman, and he recognized the handwriting on the orders as that of a colleague from the pre-war army, Robert Chilton, who was an adjutant general to Robert E. Lee. So these two soldiers discovered the battle plans wrapped around three cigars, they pass it up the chain of command. It's authenticated. It's authenticated. Now, Pittman took the order to the Union General, George McClellan. 
The Union commander had spent the previous week mystified by General Lee's operations, but now the Confederate plan was not only in his hand, but it was clear, causing McClellan to gloat these words. Here's a paper with which, if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be going home. Now that was prophetic. Uh, because the battle that's going to pursue the Battle of Antietam, the costliest afternoon of the Civil War where 21,000 casualties occurred, uh, was a stalemate. Now McClellan would, would take that and claim it as a victory, but Lincoln was very unhappy uh, that McClellan did not press the advantage. And had he done so, possibly could have ended the war in September 1862. But McClellan squandered his opportunity. Uh, Bruce Canton, the noted Civil War historian, observed that no general in war was ever given so fair a chance to destroy the opposing enemy at one time. Yet McClellan squandered the opportunity. In his initial jubilation, he was overtaken by caution. Uh, He began to doubt and question. He believed that Lee possessed a far greater number of troops than the Confederates actually had. And despite the fact that the Maryland invasion resulted in a high rate of desertion among the Southerners, McClellan was also excruciatingly slow to respond to the information in the so-called lost order. It took him 18 hours to finally act on the information that he received. And in that 18 hours, General Lee the Confederate general, was able to adjust his battle plan so that, in fact, the Battle of Antietam was not really a loss for the Confederacy. It it was a stalemate. But as I said, it could have ended the war, but didn't. Now, in our passage today, we see a similar circumstance, but with a different outcome. Young Timothy, a protege of the Apostle Paul, is receiving a correspondence from Paul. We know it as 2 Timothy. It's a part of a series of correspondence known as the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, uh, in which Paul is writing these pastoral epistles, in this case, uh, to young Timothy. And the situation is this. Timothy is in the spiritual battle of his young life and leadership. Uh, He is in a town called Ephesus. Uh, You may be familiar with that. Uh, We read about uh, Paul's ministry in Ephesus in Acts, the book of Acts. By the way, if you're not involved in men's ministry, men, on Saturday morning, they're, they're actually looking at the book of Acts and then they're relating what they're reading in Acts to the epistles in the New Testament. And so this would be something that they would be doing. And if you understand what's going on in Ephesus, Ephesus was a crossroads. It was a town uh, that was cosmopolitan. Uh, There was lots of trade and people coming from all different parts of the world coming through that area. Uh, It was also known for uh, those who practiced the occult, divination and and various forms uh, of magic, okay? So there were a lot of things going on in this this town. 
And this church that is established there is experiencing pressure from the outside, okay? Forces from the outside, cultural forces that are pressing in on it, uh, that are threatening this, this young church. But they're also experiencing forces on the inside. And, and really that's the occasion for this letter because what's happening is that there has arisen false teachers. And these, these false teachers are waging spiritual warfare uh, against this young church, against the believers in the church, and against Timothy, whom Paul has sent there to be the leader in that church. And so that's what's going on. There's a, there's a battle that's taking place. Now, in his pastoral epistles, especially here in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul is identifying the enemy. And not only that, he is giving Timothy a battle plan. He's saying, listen, here's the enemy. Here's their tactics. But I'm going to give you a plan. You know what that plan is. Uh, you've been taught it. You believe it. But now, more than ever, you need to bring it into focus and practice to defeat the assault of these false teachers. Now, who are these? What is it that they're doing? Well, let's look, if you have your Bibles, in Acts chapter 20. And in Acts chapter 20, having been run out of Ephesus, Paul, later on, calls the elders of the Ephesian church to talk with him. This is known as his farewell address. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29, he says this. He says, I know after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, some will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, okay? So what we're reading here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 is as a result of what Paul had warned them was going to happen. Now it's happening. And he's writing Timothy saying, okay, remember, you've been warned that this is going to happen. Now it's happening Here's the plan. And of course, the plan is to remain firm, rooted, standing on a solid foundation of the centrality of the Word of God, the Scripture. Now, our verse today is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. But if we read up, the whole chapter talks about the, these false teachers it talks about what they're doing. Then it also talks about Paul and the example that he set for Timothy, leading him then to exhort him to remain firm in the Scripture. But if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he gives you a, an idea of these false teachers and how their behavior uh, is being displayed. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times 
in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And he's saying, have nothing to do with these people. And you see, these false teachers were adhering to a form of godliness. It was a counterfeit godliness. On the outside, it looked good. They were holding to a form of godliness. But really, their practice of this was a demonstration that that which they held to had no power, nor the power of true godliness which comes from the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say, in verse 6 of chapter 3, this is what they're doing here, some of what they're doing. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never to come to the knowledge of the truth. said, they are main men of depraved minds who as far as faith is concerned are rejected. Okay? But they will not get very far because in the case of those men, their folly will become clear to everyone. So he's giving us a picture of, of what they're doing and, and they're influencing people, taking advantage of people. In this case, there are women that they're taking advantage of. They are vulnerable. And their, their teaching and their falsehoods are, are influencing in a negative way uh, members of the body. But he says, don't, you know, their, their, their falsehood is going to be revealed. And then in verse 10, leading up to verse 16, where our scripture is today, he reminds Timothy of his teaching. He reminds Timothy of the time that Timothy had spent with Paul earlier and how Paul had been persecuted. In fact, Paul goes on to say that all those who are true followers of Christ are going to receive persecution in the world, but yet you need to stand firm, even as I have stand firm. And then he says this, leading up to our verse this morning. In verse 14, he says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is identifying the enemy, the false teachers. He's identified their tactics and what they're doing. But then he gives a plan to Timothy. Now the question is, is Timothy going to stand firm on the Word of God and follow through the plan or not? Really, that's the question here. Paul begins by saying that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed. It's the breath of God. It's the very Word of God. And that you can count on it. It's reliable. And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, which, which means you're rebuking wrong belief and behavior. It's useful for rebuking sinful behavior. 
correcting and training in righteousness. That, that word for correcting is only used here in the New Testament. And, and it really, uh, in the Greek culture, means writing a fallen object. In other words, an object has fallen to pick it up, or if somebody has stumbled to help them up. And so literally, the Word of God is useful for correcting those who are stumbling in their faith. Or those who have even fallen away from the Lord, the Word of God is useful for helping them up and to step back into the truth of their faith. And training in righteousness, that whole idea of training is like giving instruction to a child. Helping them grow up. Training in righteousness so that God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See? That the Word of God equips us that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work to which God has called us. So that we, with the value of the centrality of the Word of God, might bring hope, healing, and wholeness to our community into our world. Now, Diedrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, Because I'm a Christian, therefore every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's Word and Scripture is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the Word of God. And we at Community Covenant, if we're going to accomplish our mission to bring hope healing and wholeness to our community and our world will only move forward if we move forward on the firm ground of the Word of God. That's our value, the centrality of the Word of God. It informs how we move forward as a church. Now, quickly, all Scripture is God-breathed. Do you believe that? There are some today that say the, the Bible is like any other book. And whether you choose to believe it or not is based on uh, your subjective faith. That you can't look at it objectively and really conclude that it's God's Word and that it's true and that you can trust it. Now, what I want to do today is share with you something. I'm going to share with you an excerpt from something called Ten Reasons the Bible is True. It's written by a man named Whitney Cunningham. He was the vice president of Prison Fellowship Ministries when I was working in that ministry back in the early 90s. Now, he went on to become the president of a ministry called the Scripture Union, which encourages believers to live and to engage the Scripture as central to their lives. Now, he's written this. I have it out, and it is at the Welcome Center. Copies of this in more detail for you. You might want to take it, pick it up, read it, and keep it and tuck it in your Bible. Ten reasons. Number one, are you ready? Manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. That there are way more copies of biblical manuscripts with remarkable consistency between them than there are for any of the ancient classics like Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. In fact, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce said this, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good, contextual, 
attestation as the New Testament. Number two, archaeological evidence. Again and again, archaeological discoveries have verified the accuracy and the historical and cultural references in the Bible. The more the archaeologists dig, the more it confirms the Bible. Again, another New Testament scholar and archaeologist writes, it is important to note that Near Eastern archaeology has demonstrated the historical and geographical reliability of the Bible in many important areas. Number three, eyewitness accounts. The Bible was written by people who witnessed the events it describes. Many were persecuted and martyred, but they never ever changed their stories. The question is, would you die for something you knew was untrue? It is no, it is no mistake that the Scripture has been sealed by the blood of so many witnesses, especially when we reflect that they died to render testimony to the faith with a firm and consistent yet sober zeal towards God. Those are the words of John Calvin. Number four, corroborating accounts. There are plenty of references in non-biblical resources to the events described in the Bible. For example, the Jewish historian Josephus, born in 37 AD, quote, provides indispensable background material for the student of the New Testament and New Testament history. In them, we meet many figures well known to us from the New Testament. Some of his writings provide direct commentary on New Testament references. That is New Testament scholar J.D. Douglas. Number five, literary consistency. The Bible contains 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different writers, but it tells one big story of God's plan for salvation that culminated in Jesus Christ. Now think of this. You can't even pass a secret around a circle of 12 people and get the same message at the end. Okay? John Stott said this, There is indeed a wide variety of human authors and themes in the Bible, yet behind these there lies a single divine author with a single unifying theme. Why? Because the Word of God, right? Scripture is God-breathed. We can trust it. Then there is prophetic consistency. There are over 3,000 specific prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Over 300 Next is expert scrutiny. The early church, the early church fathers who, who gathered together uh, the writings of Scripture and concluded that they were in fact authentic, they held high standards for what the books were judged to be authentic and therefore they were included uh, in the Bible. Now, this was a careful process of the people of God in many different ways coming to recognize what other believers elsewhere found uh, to be true. Next is leader acceptance. 
a majority of the greatest leaders and thinkers in history. Now, many of these are scientists, philosophers, okay? Wise and schooled people. A great majority of the leaders and thinkers in history have affirmed the truth and impact of the Bible. Listen to the words of Abraham Lincoln. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. But for it, we could not, uh, but for it, we could not know right from wrong. All right, two more. Number nine, global influence. The Bible has had greater influence on the laws, art, ethics, music, and literature of the world and world civilization than any other book in history. Can you think of one that even comes close? Christianity is set forth in the Bible is responsible for a disproportionately large number of the humanitarian advances in the human in the history of human civilization in education, in medicine, in law, the fine arts, working for human rights, and even the natural sciences. And then finally, what you and I can attest to change lives. From St. Augustine to Martin Luther to Joni Erickson Tata to countless everyday men, women, and children, the words of the Bible have transformed lives unmistakably and forever. Scholar T.M. Moore in his book The Case for the Bible writes these words. As unarmed masses of Christians down through the ages have shown us, the Bible is the most reliable place to turn for finding the key to a life of love and good works. I want to move forward to a quote from N.T. Wright, if I could. N.T. Wright. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, The authority of Scripture is most truly put into operation as the church goes to work in the world on behalf of the gospel. The good news that in Jesus Christ, the living God, has defeated the powers of evil and has begun work of the new creation. And so this morning, as we affirm our value of our belief in the centrality of the Word of God, we listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to young Timothy, and we believe as a church, we practice as a church, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped through every good work. Do you believe that the Word of God is alive? Do you believe that the Word of God is powerful? Do you believe that the Word of God is God-breathed? It transforms our hearts and lives. Do you believe that? There is evidence for it. Internal evidence and external evidence that we can hold on to that and it's more than just a subjective faith that we can look at the Bible, we can look at the Word of God objectively, and we can conclude that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy. I want to close with a story. 
It's meant to be humorous, but it's a challenge for you and for me. It's written by Tony Campolo in a piece he wrote called, Let Me Tell You a Story. This is how it goes. A story is told of a town where the residents are all ducks. Every Sunday, the ducks waddle out of their houses and waddle down Main Street to their church. They waddle into the sanctuary and squat in their proper pews or chairs. The duck worship team waddles in and takes its place. And then the duck minister comes forward to open the duck Bible. He reads to them, Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings, you can fly. With wings, you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings, and you can fly like the birds. That's good news if you're a duck, isn't it? All the ducks shouted, Amen! to the duck minister. The service ended. Then they proceeded to waddle all the way home. Okay? So here's the question for you and for me. If we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, if we believe that it's powerful, that it transforms life, if we believe that it is the very foundation of our faith and practice, are we going to leave here this morning and live lives as if we believe that's true? Or like the ducks at the duck church, are we going to waddle all the way home when the Scripture tells us that we can fly? If we're going to bring God's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and our world on a foundation of the Word of God, which is God-breathed, you and I and we at Community Covenant need to leave here and we need to soar. Amen? Amen.